I don't have that kind of power. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. Uh, my name is Jason. It's my privilege to welcome you t- here today. As Pastor Reeves said, if you're new, uh, we want you to feel at home. You may not consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're a seeker trying to figure that out. Um, this is a place to get your questions answered. We want you to push into that. And one of the ways that you can do that is work with this assumption for a minute. Um, God actually has something to say to you personally today. And he's going to say it to you as we, as we worship together. He's going to say it to you as we read his word together. So be open for that and be ready for that. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, you can put your thumb there as we prepare to jump into the word. If you need a Bible, we have some right when you walk through. There's some on a little table back there. So if you need a Bible, feel free at any time to get up and grab one. I asked you guys about three weeks ago to pray for something, to pray for um, our Acts 29 retreat. Acts 29 is a network that we belong to. Uh, It functions very similar to a denomination. It was in Florida. Uh, Almost 1,400 people attended. Almost all of our pastors went. Um, It represented, I think, 45 different countries there. It was phenomenal. It was great. So thank you for your prayer. There's no celebrity there. Like, the people that spoke were a bunch of nobodies. In fact, the whole network's a bunch of nobodies. I'd never met any of these pastors. God moved in a way that was profound in our network. So I want to thank you guys for praying for that. And we got rest, and we're just charged up. So we're back into Philippians now. Uh, Pastor Reed mentioned about waiting. Like, who likes to wait? Our society and our culture is built around you not needing to wait anymore because waiting is not efficient. How do you respond to waiting? Well, here, here's a couple examples. You got your favorite food. You sit down on the couch. You load up Netflix. And then it buffers. You reboot your router, and then it buffers. It sits there. How do you handle that? I'm very patient for about 45 seconds, and then I get into rage, especially if I want to watch, right? Or when somebody doesn't go at the stoplight, or the elevator doesn't show up for 10 minutes. You are not prepared to wait. You don't like waiting. I will tell you this. When it comes to your faith, you're going to respond the same way when it comes to waiting for God. We grumble. We experience anxiety or just outright anger and outburst. But here's the outcome of waiting that you do not want to see in your life, especially as it pertains to your relationship with God. You just move on. There's a dangerous assumption in the Western church that Jesus came to change or improve your life. He came to serve you. And by his own words, he did. He he came to lay his life down for you. If you expect that Jesus came to give you what you want in this life, you will not wait on it. But if you walk into faith, if you gather as the church with the expectation that Jesus will actually change what you want, you can wait. But you're not going to be able to do it on your own. Remember, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. He's experiencing conflict and trouble, and he's waiting. He's in jail. He doesn't get out. 
So he's basically waiting for death. And I get the feelings, I read Philippians, that he figured that out, and he's preparing the Philippian church for his inevitable death, for his departure. So are you willing to wait on the Lord as Psalm 130 pushes us, almost tempts us? Are you willing to do that? Does that even make sense in your life, especially if you're not getting what you want? See, you have a great reason and need to wait and to stand firm. You will not finish unless you learn how to stand firm in the Lord. Paul knows this. The Apostle Paul knows this by experience. He knows it for the Philippian church, who's very young. Actually, the same age as we are, almost 10 years old. That's, this church was about 10 years old, and then Paul wrote this letter to them. He knows they won't finish unless they learn how to stand firm and wait upon the Lord, not just in concept, but in real time. So as we walk through this text together, ask yourself, man, am I expecting God to serve me and my agenda, or am I all in and with his people and with God's power and with God's help? I expect that I am here to serve God, and he will empower me to that end. Right, what, what do I expect? What am I waiting for? So let's jump in. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. We're going to take it all the way to chapter 4. Here we go. Brothers, join in, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore... My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, beloved. Dear Heavenly Father, we need this. Waiting doesn't make sense when I'm not sure how things are going to turn out. When I'm not convinced that holding on to you is worth it. Lord, most of us would say that you are worthy. Lord, as we open up your word today, I, I pray that you would show us the treasure that it is, Lord, that we might behold its beauty. And that we might worship you, God. So we ask your blessing in this time. Would you, would you be here with us? In the name of Jesus, amen. I love the way Paul wraps it up. Therefore, and do you hear his affection? My, I love you, my crown, my joy. Hey, stand firm thus in the Lord. This is it. You need to hold your position tight. You need to stay right where you are in Christ. You need to hold your conviction, 
hold to your profession of faith, you need to do that in real time. So stand firm. Now, the text shows a few ways that that can happen practically, so we're going to walk through those together. So how do we stand firm? This is the question that I want to ask from the te- or answer from the text today. How do we do this, individually and as a church? How do we stand firm? Well, one is very obvious. First, we stand firm by walking with God's people. You will not finish on your own. This is not popular in Western culture because we believe that we are the center of our universe. That is not true even in our faith, even in discipleship. We must stand firm first by walking with God's people. Secondly, we stand firm by living as a citizen of heaven. If we don't understand what homeland we possess, we will try to build Eden in our lives right here around us, and we'll be very disillusioned when it feels like hell. And lastly, we we stand firm by waiting well, learning to wait. This is such a practical skill that we need to learn. It's so good. So God has given that to us today. Now, here's here's the setting. This Philippian church, um, they're, they're afraid. There's people, we don't exactly know why, but there's people that have rolled back into the church that used to be there, and they were teaching a different gospel. Something like, hey, Jesus is good, but let's not be that kind of Christian, okay? Let's not go overboard with what the apostle taught us 10 years ago, all right? Let's, let's loosen up a little bit. So they were, they were coming in, they were causing chaos in the church to outright conflict, right? Um, so we don't exactly know how that was playing out, but we know that they were fearful. We know that they sent Epaphroditus to go get Paul or Timothy to come back and help. And Paul sends this letter back. So right off the bat, stand firm by walking with God's people. Why? Well, here's the most practical reason. Man, you need to see God's power worked out in somebody else's life, not your own. You need to see it. You need to be around somebody who's trusting in the Lord at some degree, and you see God tangibly working in their life and working out through their life. You must see that. If you don't see that, if you don't position yourself in a community with such a commitment with one another that you can actually watch that happen in real time, you'll begin to wonder if it's true at all. Now, listen to what Paul says. Brothers, how should we understand that? Affection. Paul sees himself as one of them, family. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate me. Does that sound arrogant to you? Let's be honest. A little bit, right? He's got the cred. He's worked it out, but it sounds weird. Let's, Let's understand what he's saying. This is not because Paul has attained perfection. This is not because through Paul's suffering, he's attained some some status where he's a super Christian. No, listen, he calls them brothers. It's not because he's attained perfection. In fact, um, last week in chapter 3, verse 12, he says that. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. So he's saying, imitate me because I I run the same race you do. I haven't won. I'm in Christ with you. We are together. We run the same direction. So he's saying, imitate me. Go with me. Let's run as a pack. Walk with me. And he also knows this. He uses that word walk. It's not just what you profess, friend. You might understand the correct creed and you might have, have grown up in the church, but faith is walked out. It's an Old Testament idiom. 
You don't know something unless you can walk in it. So he's, he's, he wants them to walk together. He knows that your actions reveal what you really believe or your convictions. So imitate me, right? Let's follow Jesus together. So how does that work out first and foremost? Well, he says some strange things. Basically reject first if we're going to walk together. You have to reject the gods of this world. What do you mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself the best judge of what makes you happy? And you're, just be honest. In your heart of hearts, do you believe that, hey, I, I may not be perfect at this, but yeah, I think I know what would make me happy. And we know everybody wants to be happy. That's obvious. It's part of being human. Are you the best judge of what will make you happy? If you truly believe that you are, if you believe the gospel of this world, which is you should live for your happiness, and the way that you do that is you follow your heart, you live out your honest, sincere desires, whatever they are, and you do that courageously, if you do that, you will find lasting happiness. If you've tried that for long enough, you realize it doesn't work. Not only that, you're setting yourself up to compete with the God that made you. Listen to verse 19. He's talking about those who are rejecting God. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So what, what is this? What does this mean to be an enemy of the cross in this way? Well, first, the, this, your appetite is your only authority. At the end of the day, I'm going to do what I want. Now, if I want to be with the church, that's great. And, I, and I, I'm in a community group, and we have similar things in common. And, but if I find something in the word that confronts me, or I do not want in my life, or even someone confronts me in this, in this church or in this pack, my friends, hey, I don't, I'm not going to do it, quite frankly. You don't know what I need. You don't know my life. You don't know how hard it's been. My appetite will be my authority at the end of the day. That is the red zone of danger. And, and Paul's talking about it using a strange word, their God is the belly. That essentially means this. It mentioned the lower organs, but the way that they understood it is that was your inner life. That was your heart. That was the seat of your emotions and your will and your volition. This is who you truly were. So he's saying enemies of the cross, those who don't find their rightness or their righteousness in the cross, will never suffer for it, especially when it confronts how they want to live. So as we walk together, this kind of puts it to death because we walk the same direction and we can confront one another, encourage one another, bless one another. So appetite is authority. Um, that is you're an enemy of the cross. Man, you are full of hunger. You have desire. And they're good. Many of these desires are good, right? But a good gift makes a horrible God. When you take a good gift, um, if it even hunger, we can, we can supplant hunger for God with food. Or sex. We can, we can supplant a good hunger for sex and then just follow that out to the end. No 
restriction. I'll do what I want. This is what's going to make me happy. Or relationships, or job, whatever it is, we can follow that hunger and that appetite until it becomes our God. And the more you do that, the more empty you feel. So self-satisfaction becomes your purpose. It feels glorious because it makes me happy now. He says they glory in their shame. There's no real shame in it. It's like, no, if it makes me happy, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it, regardless of what God says about it. This mindset is, is anchored right here on earthly things. It becomes my salvation story. This is what I need. And he says it ends in destruction, right? No matter how good your life is and your self-will, no matter how put together your life is, if you are walking out of step with God's people, if you, if you pull back when they say this way, if you keep your distance because I'm not going to go that far with you, you're actually pulling back and not walking with God. And no matter how good your life will seem right now, you will, it will end up running off a bridge like a train. It, just, it will end in destruction. And when scripture talks about destruction, it always is talking about distance from God. You will find yourself in a place where it's, the chasm will not be closed. You won't even care about it anymore. So first, stand firm, and this is so critical, you've got to walk with God's people. We check each other on this. So whose voice has more weight in your life? Your own inner desire or the person sitting next to you? Did you realize the way God designs a family? You are your biggest blessing. The people in here are gifts to you. Whose voice? Um, this last week, our community groups are on break, so we had this thing called Summer Session, where we don't go to community groups, our weekly Bible studies. Um, we all come to the office, and we have a teaching, and we're going through encounters with Jesus. And I had nothing to do with setting it up or, or, or actually organizing it all. Uh, Pastor Nate Wagner, who oversees community and family, did it, did a great job. But different people in our community are teaching, and what he, what he set up is, is a testimony as well. So we had this great teaching on what it means... Um, uh, to be born again, basically. And then this person whom I baptized in this church who came to Christ here gave a testimony that knocked me back on my feet because I saw in real time that he had, as he described um, by God's grace in his life, a new appetite. He wants new things. He has a new will and he has a new joy that cannot be quenched or destroyed by anything or anyone around him. He kept saying this, um, I just don't boast anymore. I boast in the cross. He didn't, he didn't remember it was in the Bible. But that is new life. That is new life in real time. I needed to see that because when I saw it, I'm like, I want to run with that guy. I want to go the same place he is. I want to be in that pack. This is how it's supposed to work together. So we testify, we encourage one another to what God is doing. That is new life. Stand firm thus in the Lord. So standing firm first by walking with God's people. Secondly, um, you need to learn to walk or to live as a citizen of heaven. This is key. Verse 20 says this. After saying, explain those who are an enemy of the cross, those who don't want righteousness that is gifted to them through faith, they want to have a righteousness of their own, who will not suffer for the cross if it costs something, he says, but, but, 
this conjunction is so key, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is a statement of a belonging. What does this mean? The way the text is organized, it is so powerful. It means that you possess this homeland right now. Like, well, you know what? Honestly, life does feel like hell at times. Yes. But you are a citizen of heaven. You possess this homeland in real time right now. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean if you run well and stay on track, then citizenship in heaven, in the new renewed cosmos, will be yours as a gift, maybe. No, it says, but ours is now. Our citizenship is in heaven. It means that your status as a child of God, which comes through faith, it means that that is indelible. It does not come and go. Citizenship does not work like that. Through Christ, you are born into this kingdom of God. You receive it through faith. It doesn't get removed. Nobody rips it out of your hands, regardless of how good or how bad life is for you right now. You possess the homeland. This is why Paul could say, but I pressed on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So citizenship is to actually be there. So what does citizenship look like? What does it look like and feel like as a believer to live as a citizen? We need to know this if we're going to stand firm in it. First, it feels like new birth. It is new birth. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So this happens by the grace of God. You must receive it, but it is new birth. It is not improving your life. It is not taking the parts of the Bible that I like and just skipping over the rest. It is actually submitting yourself to God 100%. It is letting your hope anchor in the person and work of Christ, not just for your future, for right now. So it is new birth. Secondly, it's new life. New life flows out of this new birth. Um, This is where your attitude switches to what I can get to what I can give. When you understand the grace of God, what he has given you, not wrath, not what we deserve, but but grace, salvation, life, you start to breathe again. It gives you a humility that you cannot manufacture. So new life brings humility. It brings new appetites. You will struggle, friend. You're always going to overcorrect. But it gives you a new ability, a new power, a new privilege to exit the world's value system and live with this passion, God's glory. You can't just back out. You just can't reject the world's gods and say, well, not live for my job. I just won't do that. What are you going to live for? You have to replace that with the passion of God's glory in your life. We pursue him. This is new life. And lastly, new perspective. You live for eternity today. That is heavenly citizenship. New birth, new life, and you have a new perspective. Um, This is the time for going on holiday. Yes, vacation. (laughs) I saw somebody on a plane flying to Paris once who got so drunk, right? Getting drunk on a plane, just like the song. So drunk. When we landed and got off on the concourse, we're like... Bonjour, welcome to Paris. He's like, he throws up all over the concourse. 
you're not living for eternity, that's you. You've told yourself your plane ride is all you get. And you're ignoring everything else. Live for eternity. This is a spot. The, the, the 40 to 60 to 80, 100 years, whatever you get now, yeah, it all matters. But if you want to judge it based on the rest of everything, it's a tiny speck. Live in light of eternity. Have that perspective now. This church was in Macedonia, near Greece, Philippi. As we mentioned several weeks back, this was a Roman colony. What does that mean? They had the best of the best. A lot of Roman generals retired there. They were in the chips. They had money. Rome had been good to them. If you lived in Philippi, you were almost always a Roman citizen. The tax structure was different. And they even built Philippi to look like Rome. When you were in Philippi, it felt like being in a little Rome. It felt like home to them. And you take your citizenship in heaven seriously. The communities you build, the church you build, the relationships you have end up feeling like heaven. Ends up resembling, smelling like heaven. When your relationships are based on what I can give, when the last and the least and those that have very little become your priority. How we treat orphans, how we treat those that are, are sojourners, how we treat people in our communities that are in need will represent and show us the strength of our relationship with God. When we take serious our citizenship in heaven now, our communities will begin to smell like that as we give the Holy Spirit just all the rope he wants to lead us. Our churches will begin to look like that. So this is what God is calling us to. So standing firm, holding height, living as a citizen of heaven. And here's the key. Standing firm is waiting well. I'm telling you, this is the hardest part. Um, if you've ever been on a plane before that has is been issued a holding pattern, it's not fun. You probably wouldn't figure it out, especially if it was at night, but once in a while, the, the, the pilot will come on and say, hey, we've been issued a holding pattern. This is very common, especially on the East Coast, if you're going into Philadelphia, LaGuardia, sometimes into San Francisco, Los Angeles. Um, it's for traffic purposes, maybe for weather purposes, but the problem is it stops you. You know what a holding pattern does? You're actually stopping in space and time. Planes don't stop moving in the air, right? So you're, just, you're going in a circle so that you're holding position. There's a very specific reason for that. For whatever reason, they can't receive the amount of volume, a lot of times due to weather, so they start stacking planes in holding patterns. Your little airspace is protected, and you get a slot, and it's when your time you get to come on in and land. Here's the consequences of being issued a holding pattern. First of all, you're wasting time. You're late to your destination. You're also wasting resources. You're burning fuel while this, this happens. And many times, if you're late enough, you end up, the crew and the, and the airplane can't finish the rest of their day. So it'll end up canceling other flights. So we know the consequences of holding and waiting. Do you know what the consequences of not holding are? Because when they issue you holding instructions, you don't have to take it. You can reject them. 
you don't get to your destination. It's called a diversion. Like, no, I don't want to hold. All right? We'll clear you to a different airport. You lose your slot. You never make it to your destination. I hate waiting. There are those of you in this room today, there's something that I, I am not going to wait for this anymore. It could be a relationship, a bad one that you're in. It could be a good relationship that you're not in. It, it could be health issues. It could be depression. It could be just a distance you feel from God. I can't do this anymore. I'm punching out. I need to divert. Verse 20 is such the key to standing firm and waiting well. Listen. But our citizenship is in heaven, yes. And what? And we wait for a Savior. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You are never going to run out of fuel in a holding pattern. If you will trust in Christ, if you will hold to him, the sovereign present power of Jesus in real time gives you absolute certainty that you'll finish. That whatever road you're on, whatever struggle you're going to have to wait out, whatever that is. For Paul, he was in prison. For the Philippian church, it was conflict. Whatever you find yourself in, the present power of Jesus will give you what you need to walk through that. That's why in Philippians 4, which we'll get to soon, Paul can say, truly, I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. Do you know what the all things are? Contentment. That's what he's talking about. It's waiting. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he is the present power. He's the object of our hope right now. The risen king. This is, this is how we wait well. We hold to him. We walk with his people. Yes, we understand that we are citizens of heaven now. And that becomes more real to us. But we must wait well by holding on to Christ. This is said several different ways in scripture. Colossians 3.2 says it very well. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are earth. That's not, that's not ignoring your problem. That's not saying, oh, well, life is good when it's not. It's anchoring your hope to the person of Christ. Well, why would you do that? How does it, honestly, how does it help me wait? Listen, in this story, in your story, Jesus willingly takes on the role of enemy and his earthly life ends in destruction. Now that wasn't because he couldn't wait. That wasn't because he, he, he gave up. This was what he walked into. This was his destination. He waited on it and he took it. Not to prove a point, because he absolutely loved you to death. Jesus waited on God the Father's timing. And it cost him his life. It cost him suffering, wrath on our account. 
the Lord raised him and vindicated him, gave him victory over death. And when you trust in Christ, that belongs to you now. Does that belong to you now? How real is that to you? Is that real enough to you that you can wait wherever God has placed you? That you can wait on that job or in that relationship or in God's timing? Can you do that? Can I pray another week? Can I trust another week? See, the good news is this. God is not improving your life. Listen, the good news is that the word becomes flesh Jesus is the sin-bearing Savior, and Revelations 1.18 says this, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. In Christ, you will never wait for judgment. Jesus takes that on himself and gives you the power to walk the road that you're on today. So like Psalm 130, we can say, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Therefore, my brothers, listen to Paul. This changes your affections. Whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. I can't. Stand firm. God will give you what you need. Stand firm. Walk with his people. Stand firm. You, you possess the homeland now. You are a citizen of heaven. Wait well. Hold tight. He's not your, just your future. He's your hope right now. Where do you need that? Where do you need to press in and let God give you what you need to wait? Are you trusting in him? Are you toying with the gods of this world? I promise you, your sincere, authentic desires and appetites are unreliable. You've got to trust God. He'll give you all that you need. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. This is the, one of the hardest things you're ever going to ask us to do, is to wait. To let things be put to death in our life, Lord, as you make us new people. As you create in us a holy people that are prepared to serve and to love you and to love others, God. We cannot do that on our own. That will take a new creation. Give us the patience and the skill and the faith to wait, to wait on you, Lord, and to walk together to do this, Lord, all to your glory. So lift us up in the name of Jesus. Amen.